Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we invite you to join us for a weekly or fortnightly celebration of all things Keyforge, its community, and the excitement of Discovery. I am still your host, Ed Pocock, and today I am joined by fellow Archon and podcaster, Frank Brinkley. Frank, welcome to the pod. Hello, thanks for having me. So, for those of you listening to this for the first time... Every two episodes, we'll be introducing a different member of the Keyforge community. In the first episode, we'll learn the story behind their love of Keyforge and invite them to share their unique perspective on the game with a discussion topic that matters to them. The second episode is all about bottling the excitement of discovery, where our guests share with us the decks they consider to be truly unique to themselves. Today, We'll be introducing a new and frequent series of focus topics, answering all the questions you didn't know you had about the Houses of the Crucible, one at a time. Questions such as, how many Brobnar does it take to turn on a light bulb? Or, are Sanctum truly holier than thou? Yes, we'll be exploring the lore of Keyforge's different houses, asking who they are, where did they come from, and what do they want on the Crucible? For our first in this series, we'll be focusing on many people's favourite house, House Shadows. Super excited for us to get into our focus topic, Frank, but before we dive in, we like to ask our guests a few questions and really get to know them. So just from the hello, some of our listeners and players of Arkham Horror LCG, another fantasy flight game, may well recognise Frank's voice. If you've played Arkham Horror LCG and you haven't come across Frank's podcast, Drawn to the Flame, you are seriously missing out. So, Frank, tell us a little bit about your card game background and how did you get into Keyforge? Mm, Yeah. Um, So, yeah, Drawn to the Flame is probably the thing I'm best known for. And that's a podcast about Arkham Horror, which is another card game. But before that, I was playing Netrunner. And I imagine some of your listeners will have come across Netrunner as well. That's I think that's entirely possible. It's another Fantasy Flight Games game. The original rules for Netrunner were designed by none other than Richard Garfield as well back in the 90s. So the same person who designed Magic, the same person who originally designed Keyforge, originally designed Netrunner as well. It was another one of his games. Uh, but I was playing the FFG version where they licensed the rule set. So that's that's really my entry into card games. Before that, board games, things like Eldritch Horror, and as a child playing lots of fantasy board games, so sort of Warhammer-style things. So I realised on the way over here, I was thinking about it, I realised I'm quite a fantasy geek, but maybe a closeted one where not really much else in my life is about fantasy, but I've always been drawn to those kind of games and those 
those experiences. And actually, this comes full circle really nicely for Keyforge. When I first saw the houses for Keyforge, just seeing that there were huge giants and goblins in Brobnar, and then seeing that there were sneaky elves and shadows, I was thinking, hang on, there's a... There's a weird kind of fantasy theme sneaking in here. This is meant to be a space age sci-fi yep. game with absolutely, Martians. Absolutely. And yet there are some knights and giants and goblins and I quite like this. <laughs> so yeah, so that was kind of I think one of the things that got me into Keyforge was that fantasy edge to it, I suppose. Yeah. Awesome. So you've spoken a bit about your love of the fantasy setting of Keyforge and you've played a lot of games in the past. So what else is it that really draws you to Keyforge and, and, and keeps you interested? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the fantasy part is probably only a small part of it. And then there's the fact that Keyforge is one of the most accessible games. And I feel like when we spoke off mic about this, a lot of what I'm saying is probably fairly stereotypical this is a really easy game to get into you can buy a single deck you don't even need tokens and you can be playing so there's a there's an accessibility that i think is great and there's an excitement of finding what's in your deck uh that that really you get so quickly it's almost like it shortcuts you into the point i loved being in netrunner or arkham where i've built a deck that's truly my own in keyforge as soon as you open the deck, it's truly your own. It's it's such a, an immediate experience in the way that maybe in Arkham I've I've tweaked a deck for a while, or I've worked on it, or I've I've started with a deck that someone else has designed, and then I've tried to make it my own, and that's a, maybe a longer process. But Keyforge it seems to cut straight to the heart of ownership and some, something like that. Yeah, it's really interesting because a lot of deck builders, people with a deck building background. The deck building is almost part of the game itself, right? Absolutely, So people yeah. spend hours looking at decks, looking at the available cards and figuring things out, different brews, and, and you know, that's part of the fun of it. So for you, the lack of deck building in Keyforge isn't something that, that, that puts you off the game. No. Yeah, it definitely doesn't put me off the game. It's almost like if, if I went to a Netrunner meetup, say, back in the day, and someone sat down and said, well, I've actually built two decks. Will you play this one deck for me and I'll play my other deck? I would love doing that because I quite like the idea that someone else has built something and that discovery of what is it about this deck that they've, they've put in there. In Arkham, part of the joy when you find new investigators is about, well, what does their deck look like? Yeah. How do they take cards that we've already thought we knew and change them? So there's, some, there's something like that with Keyforge where every deck you open, there's a chance that there's a card that's not very good. But in this deck, it might just be amazing yeah, if yeah. you can find the right conversa- uh, combination. And yeah, that, that's really appealing, I think. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. And with the amount you draw, you're less stuck with a dud card than you would be in Absolutely. a lot of other games like yeah. Arkham, where you, know, you draw one card a turn on average and you're challenged there a little bit more if you've got a handful of things you don't necessarily want. We've spoken about some of your favourite things about Keyforge. If you had to pick one card that you love in Keyforge that is your only card that you could pick, what would that be? I was thinking about this on the way over. I think Just in case. Really, <laughs> Preempting some of the yeah, questions. <laughs> well, it, it's a really hard question to answer, I yeah. think. I, I should probably say as well that I'm, I don't play Keyforge competitively. I've never been to a tournament or something like that. And I'm, I'm aware that some listeners might think, well, what does he know? So I sort of have to just 
just caveat it with that, that I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of the cards of the game. But I ha- I've experienced a lot of them, I would say. So this is all a very roundabout way of trying to avoid <laughs> answering. There are a few top contenders. I think Gateway to Dis is maybe my second choice because I think that's an insanely powerful card that you just couldn't have in other games yeah. in the way that it works. Yeah. So that's Gateway to Dis. You play it and it just reads destroy all creatures, gain you three gain chains. Three chains. Absolutely. It's a great teaching card as well because for a new player, you've already told them there are no costs in the game. And chains are actually obviously a, a way of adding costs. Yes. But sort of yeah. after the fact. So that's that's a fun surprise when they go, well, hang on a second, this actually does come with a penalty. So yeah, but I, I wonder if actually my favourite card is phase shift. Okay, interesting. Because it takes a rule of the game, you choose your house and you stick to it, which I think is one of the most elegant bits of design, and it messes with it. And so every deck you look at, you go, right, there are 12 cards of each house. How do these 12 work in combination with themselves? And let's ignore the other 24. And then you get to phase shift that says, actually, this card works with all of my Logos cards and the other 24 cards. And suddenly the world of possibilities opens before you. And we've seen a little bit more with the the creative team exploring that house cheating in in Age of Ascension. And I have absolutely no doubt that there's probably more to come in our third set, Worlds Collide. I am avoiding spoilers for that at the moment. Good for you. um, Doing my best to. But that's a a fascinating choice of card, Frank. And, And I think it really typifies the potential for this game to move into that area and say, hey, we've got a rule set here. But what if, what if in this instance, we don't? Yeah, yeah. I'm a real stickler for rules. I really like learning rules of games. I think that that sort of comes easily to me. And then I think I'm quite drawn to the cards that say you get to break this rule or you get to change this thing. And that, that card phase shift can only exist in Keyforge. It just wouldn't make sense in any other game to have something that operates in that way. So... I like it as a card because it reminds you that you're playing Keyforge. Yeah, it's just it's just a really sweet card. It's and just a really elegant for, design for yeah. for people coming across from things like Magic, where they they have to ensure that everything's power. Everything has to be very power level conscious. Mm, um, yeah, I think yeah. there's a lot more leeway for for attempting creative endeavors in Keyforge and, and doing wonderful and marvelous things that you just simply wouldn't be able to do in those other games and the creative teams of those games must feel quite envious probably yeah um, yeah there's there's an example actually from Arkham that I'm just going to bring in here there's a card in Arkham called Time Warp yes that you can play and undo whatever you've done and Arkham is a cooperative game so you're playing together against the game itself But we say about Time Warp that card couldn't exist in other games because if you were playing competitively and then one person plays a card that makes you undo what you've just done, it's sort of the worst feeling in the world. But in Arkham, you can do it and you really feel like you're winning. Some horrible thing has happened and one of you has a Time Warp and you just rewind. And obviously it fits the theme of the game as well, that you're tackling these kind of magical forces and eldritch monstrosities. But yeah, it's a similar thing. It's It could only exist in its game. And that's, I think, why I love it. Yeah, I can imagine that causing absolute eruptions in the player base of Keyforge if, if something similar was there. But maybe then, Brad Andres, if you're listening, that's a, that's a challenge to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to, to produce something that's very similar that can, uh, can have the same desired impact. Yeah, I mean, there are some things that are a little bit like that in this game. 
like, is it key hammer that unforges yes. a key? Yeah, so it's a, the, this action that you unforge a key if there was a key forged in your opponent's last turn, and uh, you give them six amber, which obviously can blow up rather nastily in your face at many other times in the game, but it's uh, it's one of the only cards that can, can do that. Yeah, so obviously that card won't save you from losing a game because there's no turn after they forged their third key, but it can delay them, and at its simplest, it's just... A tempo card. Yes. It's just saying, you thought you were one key ahead of me, or you'd caught up with my keys. You haven't actually. Yeah. See you later. Do that again, but then it then feeds into all the other things you can do around manipulating that. That's I suppose that's where it gets dangerous. If you're able to then reduce the amber and things like that, then you can start being a real bully. Thanks, Frank. If you're a Keyforge player who's interested in or intrigued by the idea of Arkham Horror LCG, where would you start? And where might this take you, I suppose? Mm. You'd start by looking up Drawn to the Flame and looking up episode 33, where we do an introduction to the podcast, but also to the game, and we explain what the game's about and how to play. Or if you're not really the kind of person who wants to discover another podcast, the other thing you could do is buy a core set. There's quite a few guides out there now of how to play and what to do but the core set it comes with five investigators and you you play as an investigator in this game and it comes with three scenarios so it comes with a mini campaign that you can play well a pretty decent campaign you can play that's how you'd start i suppose it's worth knowing if you know nothing about arkham horror that it's inspired by hp lovecraft and fantasy flight games they have their own ip called the arkham files so it's 1920s america it's sleuths and detectives it's librarians in dusty libraries finding tomes of magic it's hunting for clues and also fighting back these otherworldly monsters so that's the theme of the game so it's it's probably not as um colorful as keyforge it's a lot more about uh the sort of the horrors that lurk in the darkness but it's very engaging very immersive and it's a, it's a wonderful experience around the table because you're you're allied with the other people around the table trying to solve some kind of mystery or stop some kind of calamity, which is really enjoyable. Yeah, and um, I think we've got a taste as well this year for what a mashup between Keyforge and Arkham Horror might feel like with our lead developer Brad Andres creating a scenario for the Arkham Horror universe. Uh, which was a bit of a departure, wasn't it, Frank, from some of the traditional kind of otherworldly monsters. Mm. Um, I think I think Brad just said, what happens if you've just got a blob and it takes over everything? Yeah, um, so he was inspired by B-movies of the 40s and 50s, those ideas of, you know, the terror from outer space or, or whatever it is. <laughs> and he said, what about if it was this huge blob? And I believe when he said that to Matt Newman, who's the lead developer of Arkham, he said, well, you know, that's... I, I like that idea, but so what? And he said, what if the blob's eating everything? <laughs> and he said, yeah, you know, we could, we could do something like that. And he went, no, I mean everything. And this scenario comes with, a, I think, a 16-page booklet of all the different things that the blob can eat, including it can eat your voice and you're not allowed to speak at the oh table. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it can eat um, the, the bag that you store your tokens in. So you have to take your tokens out of the bag and find another container for them. It, it 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 can eat anything wow. <laughs> and everything. It can eat the ammo out of your guns. It can eat the location you're standing on, all sorts of things. So the the great scope of Arkham, because it's cooperative, is you can do these really outlandish things and you're not 
uh, favoring one player over another or creating an unfair scenario. So you take the outlandish imagination of Brad and combine it with the world of Arkham and you get this, yeah, sort of hyper-colourful, crazy situation. Awesome. So, yes, for our listeners that are intrigued by this world, do go and check it out. We've spoken a bit about uh, about Brad's mind and the creative team's mind and, and essentially the mm. limitless possibilities of this game, of which we are only just scratching the surface. I think it's, it's difficult for us to remember sometimes that actually this game is under a year old mm. and we've only got two sets of it out so far. We've only got seven houses. We've seen a, a bit of a flash of what's coming in the future, but there's there's so much they can do with this game, with anomalies, with all these different things coming up soon but frank if you could choose to see one house in the crucible what would it be what would that house look like theme how would it play potential mechanics that sort of thing i didn't know i wanted roman dinosaurs (laughs) before gen con so i i studied classics at university so roman history is my thing particularly roman political history i'm not a huge dinosaur nut but i like dinosaurs as much as the next man or woman uh so i'm really excited about that actually and that it seems such a it seems such a no-brainer once they announced it i thought that just looks amazing. And I, I can't think of anything to trumpet at the moment. I just think it's such a brilliant idea. So this is a bit of a non-answer that I don't I can't think of something better. But uh yeah, it just it just makes me so excited. <laughs> you you trust in the uh the creative team's ideas to come up with those familiar things, mash them together and uh give us many more of those. I didn't know I wanted that, but now I've got it. I'm very happy things in the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean I suppose the other thing that, that might be fascinating is to have a house that the creatures were non-creatures or the majority of the creatures aren't really creatures. Interesting. Because that, at the moment, is such a defining feature. What do the people look like of this house? And what if you had a house that were all comprised of artefacts and things with maybe only a few creatures, maybe some kind of alien race that transfer consciousness, say and don't take physical form. Fascinating. You could do something really weird with that. I don't know if it would work, because you might end up never being able to control the board, but you could do something very strange like that. And I've seen a hint as well, I think, well, I don't know, do you know nothing about Worlds Collide? I know a few things about Worlds Collide. So I've looked at I've looked at the mechanics and I've okay. looked at some of the cards. So I've got a vague idea of of what's happening, but I'm 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 really saving it until until launch day. So I hope this won't be a spoiler for you then, but the impression I had for the other house that is not the Saurian Republic. The Star Alliance. The Star Alliance. The Star Alliance. They some of their creatures can also be upgrades. There is an endless world of possibilities, isn't there, where they could where they could take this in the future and having a house that is all about making alliances with different houses it could almost become an armory for its allies and those allies could use their kind of scientific knowledge and otherworldly scientific knowledge on the crucible um to to their effect against against their enemies probably the martians yeah it's exciting it's it could be a new way to play the game is wide enough open that you can add all sorts of different things to it. One final question for you, Frank. And mm. we like to ask our guests one slightly more fun, zany question uh, before we head into our main topic. And for you, that is, which creature of the Crucible is most likely to get a guest appearance in the Arkham Horror universe? 
Oh, good question. This is good because I thought you might ask a creature-related question and I've been thinking about it. And so my, <laughs> But I didn't think about in terms of Arkham. This might still work, actually. The, the creature I, I'm very fond of is Troll, which okay. is the eight-power Brobnar creature. When, when Troll reaps, it heals itself for three, but it's also got eight power, so why wouldn't you fight with it? So it's a really nice all-rounder creature. We could probably see a troll in Arkham Horror, but I think there are a lot of dis creatures that I imagine might find a home in Arkham as well. Arkham doesn't have too many demons, but it does have ghouls and ghosts and things like that. Which dis creature? I do not know. There are a lot of different ones. There yeah. are, there yeah. are. And, uh, and some of them kind of blur into one almost with the uh, the very very unique and consistent art style that this has mm, so i yeah. think the the demons of disruption are um are potentially a very interesting thing that you could see in arkham from from both a uh, stylistic and from a mechanic perspective Brilliant. So let's dive into our main topic. Just a reminder to our listeners, we are going to be talking about the law of house shadows. So without further ado, let's just dive straight in. Frank, when someone mentions house shadows to you, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Good question. I think for me, it's sneaky elves. (laughs) But I... I suppose from a rules point of view, it would be stealing. But combining sneaky elves and stealing, that's kind of where I'm at. And I I want to throw in a caveat here about talking about shadows. My impression about shadows as a player who's not playing competitively is that they maybe get a bit of a bad rep for being the strongest house. Yeah. And being that, you know, I read the news about the first competitive tournaments yeah. and being dominated by shadows. So... I would assume that people who are playing competitively roll their eyes slightly about shadows or are on the hunt for the best shadows decks so that they yes. can keep up with those other, other yes. shadows decks. I also have a friend who plays Keyforge who doesn't like shadows at all and says the theme is not interesting to him. It's a, uh, it's just elf stealing. Why would you, why would you care? So there's, there's both sides of it. There's people who say they don't like the theme. There's people who say it's too powerful. And I'm here as a champion for Shadows saying it's a really cool theme. It's a really fun way to play the game. It's a really fun way to mess with your opponent. And the the house itself is actually quite coherent in how it operates. Yes. Which all of the houses do have very strong house identities. So yeah, at the heart of it, it's about being small and sneaky and about taking from people who are bigger and stronger than you, which is quite a fun thing to do. And I think is perfectly reflected in the mechanics of the house as well. Yeah. So we we talked about off-air, a house shadows creature that one might immediately think of is the urchin. Yes. Who's a one-power creature, but when you play her, you steal an amber. Yep. So she sneaks in and takes an amber, and your opponent just thinks... That's so unfair. Yes, yeah. You could have the same creature with an amber pip and no playability and no one would mind. Yeah. But it's the fact that it's your amber being taken and the shadows player who's grinning at the other side of the table that that gives the house its unique flavour. And if there was one card that really typified shadows in the most simple and clean way, it's got to be Urchin. It's yeah, got to be Urchin. I think so. I think so, yeah. You've acknowledged the, the the impact House Shadows have had on the game. And um, 
that's certainly true. They seem to have had a huge impact, particularly in Call of the Archons, where Shadows, there was a perception that they really were the most powerful house. Mm. And, I, and I think that's partly partly true. They were very powerful in Age of Ascension. You know, obviously, you win and lose a game. It's a racing game. You win and lose a game based on the amount of amber you have. And when you steal an amber, you're not just gaining one but you're actually gaining two based on you know your comparison to where you are and where your opponent is. It is amazingly powerful for that effect alone. It is mm. also quite easy to play in comparison with some of the other houses. If you take Mars, for example, they need a lot of thinky interactions between the cards, mm, combos. Absolutely. It takes a lot longer to work out. And Shadows, it's stealing things. It's walking in, you steal something, you get out. Yeah. And and in Age of Ascension, maybe there's a bit of a hangover there as well, because I think it's still an easier house to play than some of the others. And my personal feeling is that the designers have done very, very well to balance out a lot of the houses in, in Age of Ascension. But because there's still that preference towards shadows, people are more used to playing it. There's that perception of it being more powerful. I think that's one of the main reasons why we're still seeing more shadows played in even Age of Ascension heavy tournaments than some of the other houses. Yeah, I, I think that's the risk you run in any competitive game where if one faction has predominated it will have been played more than the other factions once it's risen to, risen to predominance. And at that point then, it it almost is sort of... Uh, it's like it, it holds the top spot and it needs to be knocked off uh, disproportionately to make it, to prove to the players that it's not all it should be. So for instance, in Netrunner, people believed that NBN was the strongest corporation faction for okay. a long time. Even though NBN wasn't winning at the World Championships, it was winning at all the other tournaments... And as a result, people still consistently played NBN and said it was the best. And what was normally happening competitively was it was the people who could play against that who would come out on top because the majority of players were saying, well, this is the the top house, the faction. You've got to play it if you want to be in for a chance of winning. So that was really, it's really intriguing how within a, a meta, a house's success can then dominate how people perform around it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of cards I maybe want to highlight as well about um, about shadows being easy to play or sure. not. Sure, uh, there's a, there's two in a pair that I think are are really indicative of how you can be quite sophisticated as a house shadows player or yeah. quite simple. So the first is they're both actions. The first is relentless whispers. So this you get a it has an amber pip, and it says play deal two damage to a creature. If this damage destroys that creature, steal an amber. Yes. So you're you're getting an amber to do two damage and you could get another amber and deprive your opponent of amber if you manage to kill the creature. That's that's all well and good. I think that's a fairly straightforward card, but quite a nice one. And then you combine that with Nerve Blast, yes. another action. No amber pip this time, but play, steal an amber. If you do, deal two damage to a creature. So by themselves, they're both getting you one amber and dealing two damage makes complete sense but any player worth his or her salt starts combining them playing the nerve blast first doing two damage and then playing the relentless whispers to do the final two damage and you're suddenly getting quite a lot of amber from your opponent and it's quite an effective way of dealing with a decent sized creature a, a four power creature is is pretty big so absolutely even within those two cards you can see that they've got that shadows have got ways of doing damage but they also 
chase the damage with theft, which is yep. very frustrating to play against. Yep. And it means that those two cards, for instance, are just a single amber pip, but you can end up with three amber out of them and have deprived your opponent of two, which is a five amber swing. Yeah. Really nasty. It's really nasty. And and that separates the players that play each card for being a card of it on its own and the players that think about the strategy of their deck maybe they hold the hold the relentless whispers for one turn no they know that they've got a nerve blast coming and then they they play that combo because they know that they can if we look at shadows mm. there are probably three things mechanically that we associate with them we've got the steel mechanic which we've we've spoken about we've got the direct damage um you know that cheeky one and two damage it's mm. it's again it's that come in prick someone's arm with a paper clip they go ow and uh, and you run out and before they've turned around you're gone um and then the third the third thing is elusive and and this is again typifying what what you spoke about earlier frank that that fact that shadows you know they're hard to catch they're small they're nimble they run around you can't find them Mm. And uh, elusive is a really good mechanic, but also a really frustrating mechanic if you're playing against it, particularly if you've got a board heavy deck and you, you need to kill these creatures. You've got to throw two creatures in or, or, or use one of your very, very valuable direct damage uh, cards on them rather than just dealing with them straightforward like some of the other kind of smaller power creatures that you might want to deal with, like that the, the classic burn the witch cards mm. of Untamed, for instance. Yeah, the troll that we mentioned earlier, the troll can't deal with any elusive little one or two power shadows creature by itself. It just can't do it. It's got eight power and it can't kill these little elusive creatures, which is hugely frustrating. The better way of dealing with them is direct damage, as you said. One of the good counters for shadows is shadows. If you've got lots of ways of doing little bits of damage that will get through the elusive, that's much more efficient than trying to build an army of creatures to start bringing them down. And I think we've just stumbled upon here as well. One of the reasons why we're seeing shadows as that must play house at tournament play, you've said it, one of the best ways of dealing with house shadows is house shadows. Mm. So if there's a perception that everyone else is going to be playing house shadows, regardless of whether it's the best house or not, well, you're probably going to go and play house shadows as well, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. You need you need to involve house shadows just to keep up. Yeah, it's tricky. So so let's talk a bit about the world. Um, yeah. We've got Worlds Collide coming out soon, and and the colour scheme for that is uh, a very majestic purple mm. and a kind of orangey gold trim. Shadows inhabits that world. They have they seem to have a very consistent colour scheme that is an inky purple dark world uh, with some kind of orange glow, an unearthly glow almost. Very very cyberpunk orientated, mm. which is a, a really interesting realization of of this dark elvish theme. Um, yeah, so the dark elvish theme is a very interesting one. In preparation for this episode, we've both done a bit of reading and realizing how often dark elves crop up throughout fantasy settings yeah. off the back of Tolkien, really, and his description of dark elves. And they're quite, they're quite maligned, and I think sometimes unfairly, that the combination of darkness and elf therefore means evil. And particularly for Tolkien, dark elves 
they weren't evil. They just had made a different choice than the other elves. They, they'd stayed behind, basically. But immediately then, they're the ones who have made the wrong choice or are inhabiting the wrong place or something like that. It makes me think of, in Latin, left or left hand is sinister and right hand is dexter. And that idea that left-handedness is then associated with all sorts of evil things just partly because of its name. Interesting. And Dark Elves, similarly, it's, they're the ones that left behind that made the wrong choice and therefore they must be criminals, they must be evil, they must be things like that. And the the impression you get then in Keyforge is that they've probably not lent into that too heavily, but they've got the stealing as part yes. of that. And the, the Keyforge Dark Elves are the Sfar. Yes. So maybe riffing slightly on Schwartz and like Black Elves and things yep. like that, the, the German for Black... But they've gone for, a, obviously, in keeping with the Keyforge aesthetic, a maybe more cheeky or playful yes. Hobgoblin-esque Theme, dark elf, yeah. Yeah, which, I, which I really like. And one of the details I didn't realise is, is that some of the Sfar have taken the fairies that work in the Crucible yep. and twisted them to their own ends. So the, you quite often see little fairies in the art. There's one, I think, on... Miasma? Miasma, yeah, yeah, and Skeleton Key as well. There's a little fairy in the background. Yes, you're right. On Skeleton Key, it is it is a, a large green key being prized away from from a dead body by, by two uh, sneaky fairies. Yeah, so at that point, it's not even the, the elves doing anything. They've got the fairies working for them who have they been conscripted into their plan for stealing, which I... I think is a nice little little extra bit of world building that you don't realise. The Elves of House Shadows in Keyforge are known as the Svar, and this I it seems has its roots in Norse mythology. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the word, but it seems that Svar is short for the dwarves that Loki and and most of our listeners will be familiar with the term Loki, of course, you know, from the Marvel Marvel realization <laughs> yeah. of these characters. And Loki is very much a similar character in, in those Norse mythology stories that kind of almost house shadows, cheeky, mischievous. Um, you don't know if you can trust him, but still somehow likable kind of characters. Loki has to bind a wolf, so he has to find um, has to find a weapon that is capable of binding this wolf. And he goes to a, an, an underworld and asks these dwarves, can you build this weapon for me? And And somehow the definition of what was a dwarf and what was an elf got blurred a little bit and mm. and I think this is where the history of dark elves came from originally mm. which is fascinating because of course it's something we see across a number of different games now from I, I believe World of Warcraft to to um the Elder Scrolls games which are a favorite of mine mm. um and 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 straight into Keyforge here yeah I'm glad you mentioned Elder Scrolls because Morrowind actually the third Elder Scrolls game puts them really closely side by side the Dwemer who are the dwarves who are the missing race, and the Dunmer, who are the dark elves. They're, they're both Mer, they're both the same people type, and they inhabit the same island. But So they're very close together, and in the Cataclysm, the Dwemer have been destroyed and the Dunmer have survived. So, And, and are the Dunmer evil? You don't quite know. They're kind of a stubborn, uh, reclusive, maybe slightly conservative race. But yeah, yeah it's a, 
whole separate thing for this fun Elder Scrolls podcast. Mor- Morrowind yeah. is is one of my favorite games. Yeah, and, one of mine and too. indeed my favorite of the Elder Scrolls games. So for anyone that enjoyed Skyrim, that has played Skyrim, and that can stomach graphics that really don't stand the test of time quite so well. Go and find Morrowind. It is an absolute gem. There's probably a mod out there that will give you better graphics for it. There's probably someone who's gone through frame by frame and done it up. You can see that in Keyforge, they're drawing on all of these different uh, illusions and different bits of history about Dark Elves. I think they've maybe towed the line and tried to go kind of middle of the road. And I think that works quite well. I'm really glad you mentioned Loki because they have their own divinity, the first thief that they, that shadows tell stories about the first thief. The first thief stole fire from the gods. Yeah. But what the first thief did, which I think is so perfect for how shadows, he didn't give the Svar fire when he stole it. He gave the fire to someone else (laughs) And then when the Svar took the fire from whoever else it got, I'm assuming it gave it to like Brobnar Giants or something like that. Yes. When, when the Svar then took the fire and the god said, why have you got fire? They said, oh, these guys gave it to us. So the first thief kind of couldn't be done. It's like one of these great heist movies where you don't actually, you, you, you catch the thief who you think has stolen things and he's empty handed because he's already fenced it on or he was never the thief after all. It's all a kind of elaborate scheme to keep the gods off their tail. And I love the fact that you've mentioned heist movies here before uh, as well, because I think there's another element to House Shadows that's been brought in that we haven't discussed yet. And that is the kind of good old fashioned gangster movie. Now, I was reading the short stories that were published when when Keyforge originally came out and um if you if you read if you read that and you read some of the characters you'll see that when they when they speak they speak almost like you would see in a kind of in a heist movie or in a kind mm. of cockney gangster movie uh they're yeah, very yeah. they're very they're a bunch of geezers they're a yeah. bunch of geezers absolutely so that's summed up by old bruno he's one yeah. of the characters in one of the stories and he seems to have his own patois and be talking in a way he's surrounded by other Svar elves who all yeah. chime in with little remarks and comments. And you've got this idea of a boss with his gang yeah. and them all with their patter. And one of those stories is brilliant because it's all about a heist of its own kind. They're playing a card game that might be poker and you're thinking, who's getting shaken down here? There's something going on. It's a re- really good story, actually. It's a great story. Yeah. So so anyone anyone that's interested in the lore of the game, go and seek out that one. And they have one for every single house, apart from the two new ones. One of the amazing things about Keyforge is the number of Easter eggs that the developers have managed to to bring into this game, brimming with life. And I think there's a number of these in Shadows. Um, one of my favourites that I'd like to draw attention to is Mac the Knife. Mac the Knife is a three-power creature. It is elf and thief traded. It is elusive. Of course, it's elusive. And it says, you may use Mac the Knife as if it belonged to the active house, which is absolutely brilliant. It's this kind of Svar elf that doesn't play by anyone else's rules. It's got its own rules and it has an action ability Deal one direct damage to a creature. If that damage destroys that creature, gain one amber. Even more powerful. This is something that you can use turn after turn after turn, and it gives you direct damage and it gives you amber. 
the two things that you really want in a game of Keyforge. But I'm fascinated about this card because it's called Mac the Knife, which is a song from a 1930s stage play by Bertolt Brecht called The Threepenny Opera. And Mac the Knife was it. Mackie was this dodgy character. You know, he was a bit of a womanizer, a bit of a bit of a gangster, a bit of a geezer. Um, and and you might you might well know this from uh, from song a song called Mac the Knife. Um, it's a it's a proper jazz classic now. So it's very much within the repertoire of. Michael Bublé, Robbie Williams, all these different types. And the next time you hear that, I advise go and seek it out because the lyrics, once you get into it, are very, very house shadows. It's about the sailor drawing out all his hard-earned cash and then going missing. And and and, and okay. then and then Mackie, Mac the Knife is is spending like a sailor. Um so so there's some some implications of some rather dodgy dealing. All loaded into that one card. No all loaded less. into the one card. We mentioned heist movies as well. I think there are other cards that really lean into that. So, for instance, there's One Last Job, which I love because yeah. it's it's a it's an action, but the the Svar Elf picture and it has a huge long beard, looking like a little dwarf. In fact, it gives you an amber pip. It says, "Play purge each friendly shadows creature. Steal one amber for each creature purged this way." And while you were talking about Mac the Knife, I was thinking about all the opportunities you have with Mac the Knife to target your own side. And if you're going to be killing creatures, you want creatures that are small power and shadows are, broadly speaking, low power creatures. Absolutely. Similarly with this, if the creatures have all served their purpose and you just need that final push to get to the amber you need, you pull off one last job, all your shadows creatures are killed and you make a load of amber out of it. It's quite nasty, but... And the start of every single heist movie ever, (laughs) where they come in and they're like, no, one last job. We've got to do this. We've got to do this. And then, you know, getting the the band back together kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What most heist movies don't do is have all of the people in the heist team get killed. No. Yeah. It's like a very bleak take on it. Yeah. So Shadows has its fair share of of game warping effects as Mm. well. And and it, it didn't really need those because it's already a powerful enough house as it is. But it's got all these game warping effects, things like speed sigil, evasion sigil. These are things that change the way the game plays, either in those two instances by allowing all creatures played by both players to come out ready or by helping creatures to evade easier. But there's one card that I really love that is a game warping effect, and, and this is Rigged Lottery. So this is a an action card. It's got an amber pip, and the picture is brilliant. It's a shadows elf uh, running a kind of traditional lottery that you might see with the audience all going, "Oh gosh, what's going to happen?" And of course, you know what's going to happen. You know it's going to be rigged. But it's got a playability, and that is each player discards the top five cards of their deck. For each shadows card discarded, its owner gains one. Um, why do I love this? I love it for the flavour text. And that is, and the winner is old Bruno again. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. It's exactly, like, that is a card, again, we've been, we focus quite a lot on cards that could only happen in this game. That's a card where if you're playing Shadows and your opponent isn't, there is no way they're getting more amber than you. You might not get any. Oh, no. But they're definitely not getting any. Yeah. And you can really lean into that as a, 
playful way of enjoying enjoying shadows that they're maybe building an army of knights or they've got giants coming marauding down but you're running a lottery and in so doing you're profiting just you're playing a separate game at that point and your one cares about what cards are in your deck they can't do anything about it yeah absolutely and where would we be if we didn't mention the the trinity of urchin the card that we started our conversation with Dodger and Fagin. Again, it's that kind of Cockney uh, gangster movie style thing. This is coming from Oliver Twist, which was originally a Dickens novel, but most people know it from the the, the classic film. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fagin is this kind of um, dodgy character, but some way lovable, who um, takes on a band of rogues, a band of young young children, and they're, they're all pickpocketing and uh, pickpocketing for his income. So mm-hmm. so a very dodgy character, um, but but fits very well into the Shadows universe. And then and then Dodger is um is another character from, from Oliver Twist. Um he is one of the kind of favoured pickpocketers. He's the the best pickpocketer. So so his creature, which is a five power creature and it is a, a fight steel one amber, is absolutely perfect. It's worth noting that they've dropped Artful from the name of Dodger. Yeah. Because this Dodger in How Shadows it's pretty beefy. There's not too much art to what he's doing. It's one of your stronger fighters in House Shadows that you're like, okay, it's a big five power creature. That's pretty reasonable. And I'm going to steal through brute force. I'm going to fight and I'm going to win the fight and take the money off you. So there's less craft around this Dodger. I think there's a lot of collateral damage in, in the way that Dodger Dodger functions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. It's going to be interesting to see if they double down on, on the... Uh, um charles dickens uh books at some point and sort of bringing a card that's about uh, an oliver twist or something you know and twisting twisting the way the game plays yeah or maybe maybe a swire elf that isn't in shadows you know oliver twist tries to get out of that gang it certainly could happen and and one of the things i was fascinated about looking into the lore of the svar is that evidently across the crucible they don't actually have a home so they go wherever, whenever, really. They kind of have these makeshift build-up cities um, or areas that they call their own. And it's not just the Svar Elves. It's, as you said, Frank, it's the, the fairies and it's any other creature that kind of fits into that into that race and, and that style. Um, and one thing I'd love to see in the future, one of my personal kind of things I'd love to see mm-hmm. is more of a development of this amazing art style for the elves into having a wood elf race that, you know, is very much a Robin Hood orientated steal from the rich, give to the poor kind of, uh, I think that would fit really, really well in the, in the whole Keyforge universe and, and potentially a high elves, which are the polar opposite, the kind of um, binary opposition of house shadows. Mm. And maybe they could inhabit a, a steampunk world where they Ooh, nice. they build on what everyone else has on the board or what everyone else has played or the resources that everyone has. They're creative. You know, they don't need to steal stuff because they do stuff themselves. Something like that. It's I, exciting, but I'm worried prospects. by the idea of a high elf faction that have something like a generosity or charity as a keyword and when you play them you have to give an amber of yours to your opponent that would be the inverse of steel they may, maybe they have really powerful creatures but the cost is giving away your amber to get there <laughs> and i think we're seeing we're seeing a little bit of that with with the saurian republic coming mm, in yeah. with, the, with the new keyword exalt you're absolutely right the new keyword 
Exalt is a new mechanic. Um, you exalt a creature, you place one amber on it from the common supply. So you're not losing one of your own amber, but at the same time, you're giving your opponent an opportunity to pick up that amber at their earliest convenience. Mm. Um, so it's got to be a super powerful ability to actually counteract that negative. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we could see high elves that exalt themselves for some some kind of effect. It could be really, really interesting design space for them to explore absolutely could be super fun so i mean frank where where do you think they'll take shadows in the future what would you like to see from the development of this house i think shadows needs to get out from under the shadow that it's perceived in competitively no real pun intended but absolute pun delivered yeah (laughs) (laughs) thank you but i'm i'm really not sure how you do that because Part of the reason why shadows have this reputation is that they're powerful, they're, they have a lot of sophistication when you want to play play with them that way. And as you said already, in a racing game where your opponent's successes are actually feeding your own pool, yep. that's just an incredibly strong ability. I think they could maybe do more around elusive and playing with that. Yep. And we've seen some themes in shadows playing around with artifacts as well. Yep. And there's maybe more scope for doing things around artifacts. We've seen a little bit in Age of Ascension as well. Sanctum as well do things where you can give an artifact to another player and they have to pay you as a result. So maybe there's something that Shadows could do around manipulating artifacts or having more artifacts that they've either stolen or kept or want to play with. There's maybe room there. So much more design space to be explored. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And then I think... The game is still young. Just discovering more personalities in the game would be satisfying as well. Like you said, an Oliver Twist character, but also these other Svar elves like uh, Umbra or Silvertooth. There must be more of them that we could find out that would have fun abilities. Yeah. Thank you, firstly, Frank, for this discussion on Shadows. Uh, This is, again, the first of a series, an infrequent series of focus topics we will be doing on this podcast on the lore of Keyforge and its different houses. And I think we will have to get Frank back on the podcast for a discussion of the Saurian Republic at some point. Very excited about that. So Keyforge at its heart is a unique deck game. And whether it be for that combo, an exciting strategy, or just a funny name, everybody has a deck that feels truly unique to them, a deck in their collection that, that speaks to them. So join us next week where Frank will be sharing a unique deck from his collection. So Frank, any hint to the listeners about what they can expect from next week's episode? Um, It's a really weird deck. It does have shadows in, but it only has 10 creatures. Wow. I'm looking forward to this. Please let us know where do you think how shadows is going in the future Is there anything we've missed, where it's come from, and what excites you about this house? Let us also know what you'd like to see more of or less of in future episodes. We're at an early stage and we're planning to stick around, so any feedback is amazing. Please subscribe on your regular podcast app and you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and you can email us at discoverkeyforge at gmail.com. Most importantly though, if you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, please help them to discover it. Thanks for listening.